Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. I'm quoting from astronomer Carl Sagan, contemplating a photograph of the Earth taken from about halfway to the sun. You may remember the image. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Powerful words. The last time the plight of our planet featured on Naked Reflections, we started with a clip about fires in the Amazon. Since then, parts of that rainforest are losing their ability to store carbon, And in southeastern Australia, huge swathes of land have been burning up. So we make no apologies for returning to our planet, our increasingly sick planet. Here's climate scientist Ella Gilbert on the Naked Scientist podcast. There's periods in our history where there's been no ice. There's periods when the entire planet has been covered in ice for, you know, 12 million years. So it really varies between these huge extremes. But what distinguishes modern climate change from all of that kind of um, climate change is that the rate at which it's happening is completely unprecedented. If we look at um, evidence such as ice cores, which we take in Antarctica predominantly, you can see that the amount that the atmosphere and the temperature has increased in the last, you know, century or two centuries is completely unprecedented in up to, you know, a million years or so. With me to discuss our sick planet are Dr. Freya Jeffcott, research fellow at Queen's College, Cambridge, Dr. Luke Kemp from the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk, and Dr. Tobias Miller, a research fellow here at the Wolf Institute. Luke, I know that your research has looked or has included the collapse of previous civilizations. Let's start in the past. What lessons are there for today? 
So there is a, the dry fingerprint of climate change across the collapse of a multitude of different societies, as well as each of the major five mass extinction events in the Phoenixoid history of Earth. So we do know that it appears to have major ramifications for societies. It's hard to take lessons at this stage. We know there's a clear correlation. There's been entire books written on this, Harvey Weiss's Mega Drought, Brian Fagan's Great Warming. But right now we have more of a correlation rather than a causation. But generally speaking, the major killer seems to be drought. And drought is something that you've seen in your travels, Freya. Yes, certainly. I worked with Doctors Without Borders as an epidemiologist on the Somali drought in 2017, where it was hundreds of thousands of people, because crops had failed and the animals had died, were forced to move into refugee camps where then you get all the infectious diseases you would expect with kind of high density and formal living, and you get a lot of the social strains too. I think that one of the problems we have in addressing climate change maybe in the sort of wealthier societies is the fact that the true costs are somewhere else. And so we don't really see the suffering and it doesn't seem like an actual reality. I think we all have this sense that either technology God or just it, that can't happen here. So we've kind of exported it. Very much so. I think a lot of our troubles come from the fact that we've exported the costs of modern life, I suppose, elsewhere to poorer places. Tobias. But not only are the costs exported, um, I just today actually read a figure that a lot of the production of greenhouse gases actually um, outside of Euro America, let's say, actually um, are costs that we're incurring with our lifestyle. Because, for instance, um, the uh, biggest uh, single emitter of greenhouse gases in sub-Saharan Africa is actually gas flaring from Nigerian oil companies that export oil to Europe and the U.S. So uh, they are producing these greenhouse gases, but actually it's our greenhouse gas uh, emissions that are counted on their balance sheet, if you wish. Yeah, so we call these consumption emissions. Right now in the climate negotiations, everything is done by production emissions. It's only what's burnt in your own country. But interestingly, if you look at the UK, for example, while we have had some pretty deep reductions from the deepest of any developed country, once you factor in consumption emissions, suddenly it actually evens out. We haven't really had any major decreases in greenhouse gas emissions. And when you talk of consumption, it also makes me think about what we consume in terms of food. Uh, I, I read a remarkable statistic that in China there are now 6,000 KFCs when there was only one in 1987 or something and 3,000 McDonald's. And lo and behold, there's a dramatic increase in diabetes in China. So the, the consumption is partly what we eat as well as what, what we produce. And I'm just wondering whether the, the health of our planet is partly related to the health of humanity. I think actually the main problem of us thinking about climate change is that at some point in the history of ideas of human thinking in the last 2000 years, we somehow came to the conviction that humans and the planet and the earth and nature are two different things. And I think this is one of the main problems in now conceptualizing and talking about the environment, because it's still it's possible that people say, oh, you're interested in the environment, you're an environmentalist. Um, I'm more interested in well, politics or society or whatever, as if these were two separate things. And so a lot of the environmentalist uh, thinking and political thought also says we have to start with reconceptualizing what humans are and how they are animals, of course, but also part um, of nature. 
So the idea of deep ecology actually um, proposes this idea that um, everything we are and what we do is necessarily predicated on everything around us. It's predicated on the uh, plants, on the animals, on the atmosphere, on the on the minerals, and to conceptualize as us ourselves and our societies as inextricably linked. So I think one of the key things that we need to overcome is that dualism, particularly uh, dominant in, in Western thought, I think. Other traditions have been much more successful in uh, combining the two that really differentiates conceptually humans from the environment. Yeah, I think this is a key reconceptualization is thinking ourselves as another species, one that's entirely dependent on ecosystems as every single other one is. I think given that there should be no surprise that the health of humans is entirely interlinked with the health of Gaia, of Mother Nature, of Earth. So when you look at most of the actions we can take to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, they have large co-benefits, which essentially means it doesn't just help to reduce, mitigate climate change in the future, reduce emissions, but it also helps in many other senses. So I think it's what, 9 million people die every year due to air pollution, something along those lines. Um, so, you know, even if we didn't, even if we didn't have climate change happen in the future, there'd be a very strong, compelling economic case to reduce emissions just purely in the basis of air pollution. Yeah, it seems like splitting the accountancy in different mm. sort of global challenges has really not done us any favours in solving them. Because if you do something just on economic losses or gains, you yeah. don't take into account sort of physical health or mental or social health or ecological or even like aesthetics, the beauty of diversity and sustainability and such. You end up with these very weird, discrete like, yeah, I guess, sort of ledgers that really should all be combined to work out um, more holistic, optimal solutions. Do you think that's the reason why people haven't really heard the message, the complexity of the message, that it's all interrelated, that, that the advocacy is just not clear enough to reach beyond those who are already committed to the cause? So I, I'm probably way off base here, and I'm hoping Luke or Toby stops me if I stray too far from the path. But sometimes I wonder if we just don't have a vision of what that looks like, that we're so used to seeing things as sort of economic figures or in public health we have dailies, so disability-adjusted life years and such, that we don't actually have a vision, a sort of detailed sense of what society looks like if it's in more of a state of sort of sustainability or balance. Yeah, there's the old quote that it's easy to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism. That being said, I do think we, we do have the visions out there, just haven't caught attention of the public's imagination yet. There's been plenty of ecological economists, people like Herman Daly and whatnot, who've sketched out blueprints for what it could look like to have a society that is no longer dependent upon greenhouse gas emissions and GDP. I do think the visions are there. It's just potentially the society's not willing to actually grasp onto them yet. So do you think that part of what we're facing is a crisis of the imagination. And I think it is important to take that very seriously and try to understand where it's coming from in order then to integrate or, or foster these visions as well. And very tellingly, um, um, Amitabh Ghosh in his uh, book, The Great Derangement, uh, is thinking about how can we represent climate change and how is it represented in one of the most powerful forms of human cultural production in novels? So he thinks about the time frames that um, are prevalent in novels, uh, say, for, from the 18th to the 20th century. And very often what the novel does actually is, is discussing, discussing something that is very concrete, that is very detailed to one specific lifetime of a single individual. So it's very difficult for a novel actually to capture 
the Anthropocene time, the long timeframes that are necessary to capture climate change. And he is pointing towards the fact that we don't have real novels taking into account major environmental change and climate change. So he says, why is the novel, why are actually authors lagging behind so strongly in creating these images and these stories at the end of the day, which we need uh, to capture what is going on. Although interestingly, Gosh's kind of pleads, I don't think have fallen upon deaf ears. There's been a boom in climate related fiction. And arguably, the pioneer here is actually being Game of Thrones. The White Walkers are a pretty clear metaphor, at least some see it as a metaphor for climate change. It's the threat up the north, eroding away the ice that people are ignoring well, they're too busy with their politics, but slowly is threatening the entire kingdom. It's a very beautiful me- metaphor, a very eloquent one. I'm not sure if people have read that far into it. I'm not sure if the general populace actually sees it as climate change, but it is there. Having been an avid watcher of Game of Thrones, I've never seen it in terms of climate change. And maybe that's, if, if I'm one of a number, maybe that's part of the issue because it hasn't reached. You mentioned novels, Tobias. It, what, what can we do? So I've been wondering about this because I've been wondering about sort of inertia in the face of other large public health challenges too, where the writing's clearly on the wall, but for some reason there seems to be some sort of protection of this detrimental status quo. And I heard it in Cambridge after the latest round of um, Extinction Rebellion protests where people used all these strange sort of, I accept the science or I accept the problem but for this reason or this reason, taking action is bad. Or if I were to do something, I'd do it in this way, only they're not actually doing it. And I'm not sure what sort of future of social psychology or fear or what kind of tipping point into action there is. Or I feel like organizations like Extinction Rebellion do give, even if it's not everybody's favored path, a path towards demanding action or a sort of collective direction. And so maybe I don't really understand what's stopping people participating or like cleaving new parts. I mean, historically, one of the biggest issues has been the disinformation campaign ran by major industry. So there's an entire book on this, Merchants of Doubt. So whether it comes from tobacco or ozone-depleting substances, the issue has largely been industry trying to intentionally sow doubt amongst the populace. And I think luckily we're kind of moving beyond that to the stage where people do accept the signs, but I don't think they really fully internalize it. You know, if you actually understand that there's an 11% chance under the business usual scenario to get to six degrees potentially, that should be heart stopping. That should really change the way you're engaging politically. It should change who you're voting for. But we don't see that. I mean, the pessimist interpretation of this could be that historically, we only really address problems when they become salient. We have an inbuilt salience bias and we didn't address ozone depleting substances until all of a sudden in 1986, you had the ozone hole. We didn't address lead pollution until all of a sudden we actually saw children with neurological disorders. That maybe you have to wait until there is a tipping point, until you can truly and fully feel the effects on your doorstep. Well, let's hold that thought for one moment, because we've reached the halfway point of this discussion. You're listening to Naked Reflections, and my guests this week are Freya Jeffcott, Luke Kemp, and Tobias Muller. Climate change is obviously a worldwide problem, but paradoxically, its effect in the UK might be to make things colder. It's all to do with the Gulf Stream, as Professor Ian Bateman from the University of Exeter explains. 
unfortunately, if climate change proceeds fast, what you're going to find is that the melting of the Arctic glaciers on Greenland is going to disturb that Gulf Stream and push it south. So that unfortunately, all that hot water, instead of coming up to us, it'll push straight across the Atlantic. The results for Britain then is that we go from getting warmer and warmer and warmer to suddenly, by the time you get to three degrees, getting colder. Scientists call it a tipping point. It'll be cold, dry. So, tipping point. We seem to have reached this, this, this tipping point. What do faith communities have to say about that? Because faith communities, Tobias, don't just think of, you know, next week, next month. They do think in terms of decades, centuries, and of course the Catholic Church is known as thinking in terms of millennia. So a lot of people who actually have nothing to do with faith realize that religious communities are an absolutely vital player that we might need to get on board. This is uh, the case, for instance, um, with uh, Lauda to see encyclical, obviously, of the Pope, but also Rowan Williams um, very powerfully uh, supports um, climate activism and he supports um, also Extinction Rebellion because he says uh, what these people are doing is really communicating the urgency. And uh, just as an example, um, in the October rebellion in London, there was a faith bridge um, established where uh, Buddhists and uh, Muslims and uh, Jews and Christians and people of other denominations came together to occupy a bridge and to celebrate the appreciation of the creation and to bring together their respective stories and their moral imperatives to do something about climate change. Uh, Luke, we're from the uh, Center for the Study of Existential Risks perspective. How much do you engage with different religions? To be frank, not that much, actually. Interestingly, one of our scholars, Phil Torres, he previously was working with Caesar, and he looked quite a lot at the idea of eschatology, which is essentially the study of the end of the world. And so interestingly for us, the kind of beginnings of our field in a way were eschatology. There were religions that were imagining the end of the world. And of course, we then had an understanding that extinctions do occur and that humans are another species. And that became, became the basis for understanding that humans could go extinct as well. So he has done some historical research into how we've imagined the end of the world and what that means for how we think about it now as well. And I think there are interesting parallels when the way we think about major risks and religion as well. So... It may be that the religion has more to say than just the end times and the sort of the eschaton. Of and course. it may well be worth, worth, worth engaging with that in a, in, in a substantial way. Because I'm sure in your experience, Freya, sometimes the faith communities on the ground are providing the social resources that the, the, the civil society can't provide. Absolutely. I think a lot of people forget that the vast majority of healthcare providers in places like Africa are actually faith-based organizations, predominantly Christian or Muslim. And when it comes to sort of mobilizing public health action, often we're relying on that existing infrastructure. I, I think public health has a sort of second problem, though, when we think about, uh, I guess, existential risk, in that almost all our sort of measures and the way we engage are just a single generation. All of our sort of units of measure consider just one life course. And we very much struggle to understand multi-generational risks, though a WHO report just came out about future generations and such. But this is very much a change in tact with us in a way of thinking about health. Faith communities have another big advantage, which is often they span continents and are global. So if we're thinking about how to communicate the droughts in the Sahel, which are devastating, as has been mentioned, then it might make sense to mobilize the idea of the Muslim Ummah or of our Christian brothers and sisters to 
create a certain emotional proximity as well. And I think this is definitely a way that faith communities have not done enough and a possible avenue of development. I think one particularly promising avenue is the intersection between politics and faith insofar as the major kind of right-wing groups, both in the US as well as Australia, are often also fundamentalist Christian. And I think there's a large potential here that if you can move away from political ideology and kind of bring them more through faith-based organization, that could be very, very powerful. And I think one of the saddest turns in the climate debate has been it's become incredibly polarized and a real left-right issue. We forget that some of the original pioneers of actually using, say, for example, carbon markets or acting on climate change were people like Margaret Thatcher and John Howard. Margaret Thatcher brought up this up when the IPCC was first created in 1990. She actually praised its creation. And John Howard was one of the first people to actually ask for an emissions trading scheme in Australia back in 2006. Unfortunately, since we've had the merchants of doubt get involved in the fossil fuel industry kick back, that's changed. But hopefully the faith-based organizations can be one pivot to make sure this is no longer a politically polarized issue. When we look historically, the most successful movements are one that achieve a critical mass. There's a very famous piece of research done by a PhD student in the US who calculated that it seems to be a magic number of 3% of the population. Once you get above that, you are much more likely to have a successful movement. And this really underpins the reason as to why you want to knit together different interest groups in different parts of society, because that helps you build a critical mass much more effectively. I think it also ensures that society is going to take your concerns much more seriously as well. It's not going to be pigeonholed as the demands of a single concerned interest group, but representative of the entire populace. I know that not everybody sold on one of the demands of Extinction Rebellion, which is the People's Assembly. But do you think that this is an opportunity for a different way of doing sort of politics and engaging the community at large in general, and that we should be thinking about different sort of political structures? I do think that it would provide a really important counterbalance to representative politics as we have it now. Just think about uh, the US Congress, for instance, more than 50% of the people there now are millionaires. So you just have no representation whatsoever anymore um, with the population writ large. And so I think this idea of the um, People's Assembly or Citizens Assembly to really bring people that are really representative of all of population, including marginalized communities like homeless people, for instance, into a room, take a quarter of the people um, – elected politicians and then really bring the scientists in and have them make their case. I think that would be really crucial to have a debate that really is on the topics, take the scientists seriously and not always view everything, as you say, through the prism of party politics already. I think the demand for citizens' assemblies may be actually the most important demand they're making. There's a really large body of literature on this idea of deliberative democracy that you don't have democracy for representation, but instead you have a lottery system, which is actually how democracy is originally done in Greek Athens. And then you have people deliberate. You actually have them genuinely engage each other's arguments and have experts in the room as well. A colleague of mine, John Dreisach, back at the Australian National University, did a large amount of um, studies on this. And you find it with climate change, for example, even when you have people who don't consider themselves to be kind of climate change believers or be concerned about the issue... After going through this deliberative process, their policy recommendations end up converging to be very similar of other citizens. I think most of our problems could actually be fixed if we had better representation of actual people rather than billionaires and millionaires in the room. And when you actually look at the polls, whether it be in Australia or the US, most people interestingly actually do support climate change, more spending on foreign aid, for example. Most people, the problem is that often they're voting on the basis of identity rather than policy. 
There was a really funny um, issue which happened to Australia. We had this thing called the Voting Compass. So uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, our kind of version of the BBC, had this little app where you basically put in your different policies you prefer, and then from there it would spit out who you should vote for. And a very large part of the population, I think it was over 50%, ended up that they should be voting for the Greens. So maybe that is a ground for optimism, the, uh, the app that you mentioned in Australia. And I'd like to end by asking this question, what else might we do uh, practically, whether it's on an individual basis or on a communal basis, what can we practically do to give us all some sense of, uh, of optimism? One step before that, I think we need to recognize the grief about the destruction of the planet and allow that to come close to us. Allow that pain that we are wrecking the possibilities of life of our children and our grandchildren. When we recognize that, from that point, I think we can then start um, to come together. I think this is really crucial in communities, in people to overcome that isolated in hyper-individualism that everybody has to do that on their own as consumer, whatever, but really come together in, in communities and, uh, um, and together uh, think about what are the resources that we already have, that are already in place. There's a song that is often sung on the barricades in the Teach Rebellion. We, get all we, need, we have all the love, all that we need um, to change the world. And I think there is something to it. It's already in our hands. I think that is part of the good news. You change the world through the bottom up, whether it's civil rights, universal emancipation, voting, even sanitation. They all happen from citizens taking to the streets, shackling the state and actually demanding real change. And I think, unfortunately, that will have to be the path once again. Freya, last word for you. I think that it, following the sort of coming in terms with the grief and the recognising the power of the people, it has to be a sense of individual efficacy too, that we can put aside this apathy, that there is a way to take action and for it potentially to be meaningful, not just on one front, but uh, sort of be excited about potentially changing society in a larger, more positive way. Well, we've reached the end of this podcast and thanks to my guests, Freya Jeffcott, Luke Kemp and Tobias Muller. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback, or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Naked Reflections is also available from wherever you access your podcasts. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.